0: Hi everyone, here we are again with uh, another amazing guest. We have assistant professor Tim Jenkins. I would like to introduce him to you a little bit. He has his bachelor's in zoology, and then he had his PhD in Cambridge university in biology and biotechnical research. There are other couple of stuff that I want to briefly touch upon, but, uh, and then eventually we will come to the core, the toxins and how to design broadly neutralizing antibodies for that. Tim.
1: Thanks for having me Murat. Really good to be here.
0: I see that you are still actually part of this Milner Therapeutics Institute as an entrepreneur.
1: Well, no, I don't have an official role with Milner Therapeutics Institute. I'm still connected with them and uh, lots of good friends there, but my official role of connecting academia and industry while I was in Cambridge is unfortunately over now. Due to geographic limitations of being in Copenhagen now.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about more, you know, what were you doing there
1: during the, those four years? During my PhD, I was working on microbiomes and parasites, basically tiny snakes, also spitting venom, small proteins. Um, but I was very interested in translational science. My main PhD was rather fundamental with next-gen sequencing, but I wanted to get involved in entrepreneurship and one of the avenues I saw was through the Miller Therapeutics Institute that had just kind of started up shop and were looking for representatives at the different departments around Cambridge. And I was selected to be the one for the veterinary department, um, which is where I was based. And so my role was basically talking to different academics around the department that might have ideas or ambitions to translate their science into something more, yeah tangible as a product or a company and connect them with industry partners that might be interested in actually carrying these projects forward because historically there's always been a bit of a adversity of academics, fearing that industry would steal everything and industry fearing that academics will just blunder all of their ideas out and tell everybody about them. But I think the meeting we have here today is a good showcase that things are changing and there are better times ahead of us.
0: That's so true. And I know that actually you are just running another kind of a cool collaboration project. Was it
1: with that um, Deep CDR? Uh, I work with InstaDeep. Yeah, InstaDeep, sorry. No problem, no problem. There's a lot of cool people out there and InstaDeep are one of the companies that I'm collaborating with, we're organizing the largest hackathon in Africa right now, uh, based on some of the data that we've generated in our group. And um, yes, seeing if around 2,000 students that are participating can figure out a, a cool problem of identifying toxin epitopes using neural networks and deep learning. And the antibodies for that
0: project, I think they are coming from publicly available uh, antibodies. Is that fine?
1: So we're actually not doing real antibody simulations. What we have is mm-hmm. they, from currently available antivenoms that have been screened against all kinds of snake venom toxins from Africa. And the epitopes have been identified and so it's basically a signal matching of signal to target, but I can't say much more because uh, the competition is going to be revealed in the coming days properly.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Let's not get ahead of ourselves then. So you got into the Venoms, would you say more in the uh, Milner Institute time and then move on to your research
1: with that? Well, Actually, I have been fascinated with venomous animals since I was, I think, six years old when I went to Australia and got to uh, play with a lot of cool animals. Unfortunately, not so many venomous ones. My parents were a bit apprehensive about that, but I was definitely deeply fascinated. And since then that fascination only grew and kind of transformed while I was doing my undergrad in Cairns at James Cook University to being more and more interested in the actual venoms themselves rather than just the animals. And as I left Kansas and went to Cambridge, it became a more of a biotherapeutic interest also um, while being exposed to different ideas at the Milner Therapeutics Institute and the Innovation Forum Cambridge. I was more interested in actually figuring out solutions to treating snake bite victims around the globe. And that's also what I'm doing now at the Tropical Pharmacology Lab in my own group, the Digital Biotechnology Lab here in Copenhagen.
0: That's fantastic. Um... So that I think nicely sets the context for today's discussion. I know that you do multiple things with the uh, toxins. You have systems in place to do high-throughput structure prediction. Uh, you're looking for maybe common epitopes to design broadly neutralizing antibodies and you use machine learning for doing that. We would love to hear more about that one.
1: Yeah, uh, happy to talk about it. A lot of the things that you've mentioned are things that I've been ramping up quite recently because the group that I'm embedded within, um, the one I mentioned, the Tropical Pharmacology Lab, includes around 30 or so scientists led by Professor Andreas Lawson kiel and he's been pioneering monoclonal antibodies as snakebite treatments. For those of you who've never heard about snakebite, I think it's quite important to point out that it is a surprisingly large problem. It's actually a humanitarian crisis that has been recognized by the World Health Organization as one of the most severely neglected tropical diseases out there, affecting millions of people across the globe, which is hard to believe when you live in a country like the UK or Denmark, where it's not really a big issue. But in places like Africa, Southeast Asia, India, South America. It's a huge issue where a lot of lives of people are affected every year and not in a positive way. And currently the only available treatments are polyclonal animal derived blood products. Like these things were discovered and developed around 120 years ago and basically involve the injection of the production animal, such as a horse commonly with a venom of interest. You wait for about a year or so, the forces' immune system will start generating antibodies, hopefully. And at the end of that time, you take the blood, purify the plasma, and inject that into humans, which sounds rather barbaric in the 21st century, but it is currently the only way to save people's lives. And it does save people's lives. But uh, as you'll be aware, there is some room for improvement. And that's kind of what the main focus of the umbrella group that I'm working with is, is trying to come up with a solution to this issue. And the idea is that we want to use some of the technologies that have been pioneered in cancer and HIV to actually discover specific monoclonal antibodies against key medically relevant toxins. And that's also one of the most challenging things. Like you get a lot of benefits by doing that. You've got control of your product. You're targeting the most toxic things within venoms, but the discovery and development of them requires quite a high upfront cost, which is also why there hasn't been a lot of innovation. People who are affected are poor, so big pharma can not really argue to their investors why they should put a lot of money towards saving them if they can't get a return on their investment, just while we're trying to fix this in an academic context. So that is also the main focus of our group is discovering antibodies and Antibody similis, nanobody, stapins, any kind of scaffold that makes sense in a therapeutic and industrial context to help neutralize snake venom toxins as a potential next generation treatment. Mm. Now, the way our group has done this mostly so far is by in vitro approaches. Uh, our bread and butter is antibody phage display, where we use Uh, well, the Nobel Prize winning discovery from Greg Winter and um, John McCafferty and some others that were involved in this work to actually discover these antibodies. Um, But now what I'm trying to do is also leverage the power of modern big data and also AI approaches on top of what we're doing already to facilitate this process and accelerate it because time is of essence to actually help these people most in need.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how big is the problem when you think about in terms of toxins and the variety and the number of epitopes you need to hit? Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, it's a a super good question. Um, That is one of the most challenging aspects of dealing with snake bite and also one of the most interesting if you're looking at it from an academic perspective. Because when we're talking about snake venom toxins, we're talking uh, about a target space of over 2,000 different proteins which is way beyond anything you're dealing with in most other conditions. And that makes it extraordinarily challenging because trying to discover antibodies against 2,000 plus targets is a mammoth task, but it's also totally infeasible to bring out a product that includes 2,000 different antibodies. So even a subset of that, like let's say Sub-Saharan Africa, we probably need a 100 or so specific antibodies to cover Sub-Saharan Africa. So we need to be very smart about what tools we use and what we, how we approach the problem because as intelligent as it might be academically, if the end product is totally useless, we're not doing our jobs. We need to bring something out there that can help people. And so that's why we're trying to use cheap scaffolds or potentially cheap scaffolds like nanobodies and darpins that are very cheap to produce at large scale. <laughs> but also smart approaches of getting these broadly neutralizing antibodies where we try and use a single antibody that recognizes a whole subset of different but similar toxins. Because in this whole diversity, you do have similarities, overlaps, and you can decrease the target space substantially if you take into account a somewhat limited amount of variability and say, okay, if we cover this epitope, that's actually conserved across let's say 10, maybe 15, 20, 100 different toxins. So if we've got a good bind against that, we can decrease the complexity of the end product substantially. And that's also where these computational approaches are coming in handy, and where we're trying to do some work to deconvolute this target space.
0: Is that where you mainly use the machine learning then?
1: Yeah, so machine learning is something that I've only started looking into about a year ago, and we've only recently started implementing it in the context of yeah playing around in terms of epitope prediction um but and also structural prediction. so predicting structures of antibodies predicting structures uh, of antigens primarily so one of the first projects where we actually applied machine learning was trying to resolve all of these snake venom toxin structures because only about 20 or so of them were experimentally resolved And to find toxins that are likely neutralizable by a single target, one thing that we could have done and we're doing to start with was sequence alignment. So we aligned all of these snake venom toxins and based on sequence similarity, we could pick ones that were similar and we thought might be cross neutralizable by the same therapeutic. But as you're well aware, we're dealing with these interactions in a 3D space. They happen in a 3D space. Conformational epitopes are not the same as linear epitopes. And so. Having some sort of structural data was absolutely key. So when we started this, we used kind of one of the main tools out there called Modeller to model all of these snake venom toxins. And just as we were done, DeepMind came out and said, "Hey guys, we've got AlphaFold two, and it's way better than anything else out there." So we decided to jump on that hype train and also model all of these things using, well, a uh, homolog to AlphaFold, Colab Fold. Collab fold together with a company in Munich called Excellent Solutions. They helped us out a lot there, which was really great. And so we've modeled all of these snake venom toxins different ways. And I've already learned a lot about also structural modeling and AI predictions in that space, because even though Fold and AlphaFold rely on the same type of architecture, transformer-based deep learning, um, you do see differences in these predictions and quite important differences which means it's quite useful to actually look at different modeling tools that are advanced as these are. They did help model in a lot of cases, but we did see that there were differences that need to be taken into account and we can not solely rely on. So that is one of the things we're doing. Docking is something else, but as you're probably also aware, docking a target and an antibody is only as good as the data you provided. And so we found it's very important to have epitope data as well as paratope data, the actual interface, the binding areas of the toxin, the binding interface of the antibody. And if you can give that information, you get a way better docking simulation. It gives you ideas on how the complex is formed without having to do very time-consuming extra crystallography. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to complement our data needs with experimental methods that we're setting up in the lab to generate the data that is required to start learning more and being able to do more and actually do machine learning because as everybody who is in big data and AI knows you cannot do anything without a good quality well annotated and large data set and that is the main limiting factor of anybody who's in the space of antibody antigen predictions. And so that is what I'm currently putting most of my energy towards is building that data set of lots and lots of antibody antigen sequences, lots and lots of epitopes, lots and lots of paratopes, as well as then structural data that can be overlaid into this multifaceted gold mine that we can actually use to understand these interactions and hopefully start predicting them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely key for a lot of ai companies right Uh, especially if you can generate such kind of data in the lab uh, in good quality then that's going to make the biggest difference i think uh, in terms of finding or designing good antibodies and on that journey of identifying toxins finding common epitopes and designing broadly neutralizing antibodies and bringing all of those to the patients Where are you on that journey right now?
1: I mean, we are in early days where we definitely are. We have generated some preliminary data. We've got preliminary epitope data, as I mentioned, that's going into this hackathon where we'll see for the first time what you can do um, with AI on this kind of data set. Um, And we've generated some sequence data. Also working together with you um, to try and generate some more to start learning a bit more about these data sets and it'll yeah it's it's something that's been building up. I'm talking to you guys, I'm talking to InstaDeep. I'm talking to Nvidia to see how we can join forces and hope hopefully solve this problem at a snakebite. But it is something that is very new. I mean, I don't know if anybody else who's thinking in that space within snakebite. So I'm trying to uh, really get some funding to get things moving, but it is, it is a field with a lot of potential because of this huge complex target space that we have. We have the option of generating extremely interesting data in terms of understanding antibody antigen interactions that is translatable way beyond snake bites. So there's a lot of incentive besides the humanitarian aspect of trying to help these people to actually use this data to understand larger antibody-antigen interactions.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, when you were describing the problem space, you said that maybe this is not too appealing to pharma because of the financial incentives that are put in place. So what do you think then the best model to get those antibodies once they are designed and proven that they work well to to the market?
1: Yeah. So another very good question. I think the key here is that the discovery costs are quite high with this approach. But once you've got your panel of antibodies that you know work, especially if they're in a format like nanobodies or DARPINs, production manufacturing can be done in a way that is at least at no loss of um, profits um, or input. So we, we've done some quite complex modeling where we try to calculate the different cost factors that they play into next generation antivenoms. What are the most important criteria to take into account? And cross-reactivity is a huge one. Affinity to some extent, so molar molar ratios of how many antibodies do you need per toxin are very important. And if you can engineer these two aspects, the rest becomes incredibly cheap because manufacturing is so efficient, especially now with... The pandemic, One of the benefits has come out of it, there's a lot of capacity out there to actually produce at large scale uh, interesting biologics. And so once this discovery is done, it won't be very difficult to roll them out in a way that is potentially even profitable, but most importantly, sustainable and can help the people that actually require treatments.
0: Okay. So is there a profit, non-profit sipping out in the horizon for you?
1: Honestly, our group has got quite a few different commercial um, projects and the professor I'm working with Andreas Lawson-Kiel has got a lot of startups, but Snakebite has never been for us a commercial endeavor and will also never be something that we are doing for profit. So the only things that we're really considering here is what is the fastest and best way to get a product out there. Mm -hmm. And we're exploring all avenues If it is us who should start a company to move us forward, sure, we will do it. But I don't think in the long term that we will be the ones manufacturing these antibodies and selling these antibodies. I do think collaborations with Docs Without Borders, WHO, local governments um, of the countries that are actually needing them are the most sensible ways to push things forward because they are also the people who know how to deploy these products, how to get them to the people that need them. That's not our expertise. Mm -hmm.
0: In our previous conversations, uh, I recognize that you are really very proactively reaching out to a lot of um, AI, ML companies out there to, to speed up the whole process. Is there any part that you can also share?
1: I mean, a lot of these conversations are, as you mentioned, uh, quite early stage. I'm very proactive and trying to get people interested and excited because I think there is a lot of good that can be done. Um, and there's a lot of mutual benefits to collaborating on this. It's something where everybody can actually take a lot in terms of learning experience. As I mentioned, applications that go beyond the scope of Snakebite, but also knowing that what you're doing has some direct value. I think the what, what I can say is that the people I've talked to are extremely passionate and uh, they care a lot. InstaDeep is the largest African AI company. Uh, the CEO has a huge want and desire to help people in Africa. And so being a part of a solution of snake White would definitely fulfill this. And it's, it's a natural synergy. Um, and the way these collaborations could look is by supplying expertise within AI and hardcore data science, because I'm a self-trained bioinformatician, my expertise with AI is very much top down. I understand what we need to do. I know what we can use it for. I know what the in and the out is, but I'm not the expert programmer who can run these things. So that's where a lot of these yeah, synergies come to shine because companies like Insta, companies like NVIDIA, people like yourself have a lot of in-house experience where you can help us out in that way and also help people get trained. And I think also very importantly, gain awareness. Um, because a lot of people are not aware of snakebite being such a problem. And fair enough, right now, there are bigger problems in the horizon, but it's nevertheless an ongoing one that we have neglected for a long time. So I think as a human species, we have some sort of duty to fix problems if we have the tools to do so, and snakebite is very much a fixable issue.
0: Well, thanks to you and through these channels, hopefully more people will be aware of that problem. Um... I I see a few questions coming in the Q and A. I'll pick the first one. Quite a technical one. I'll put on the stage. What was the case where you didn't have structural epitope or part of data? How would you dock or model them?
1: You you can always dock and well if you yeah structural data. I mean you you can model the structures very well. I mean there's a body builder for antibodies which is absolutely stellar. Coming uh, from uh, Oxford Grape, which is really at top of at the top of their game. So modeling proteins right now, you can get very very far, right? If you just have a sequence data, docking you can always do. And the the annoying thing with docking is that things will always dock, even if they don't naturally bind. Which is why people get confused sometimes when they see docking tools where like, okay, we can predict if it will bind. No, you cannot. It can just see and tell you where it's most likely to interact if an interaction occurs. So we, we have docked a lot of things where we don't have epitope and peritope data, and it's interesting, but it's not very useful. So you really need epitope and peritope data, or even better, x-ray crystallography data, but that's very low throughput and time-consuming to get a good understanding of yeah the interface between your two protein players in this case.
0: Thank you for that. Coming your way. Thanks for your talk. Two questions. What are most similar and distinct parts of venom toxin specific antibody research and disease specific antibody research?
1: Okay, so uh, let me see if I get this question right. So the most similar things between anti-venom and venom research compared to other target spaces are that we're working with protein-protein interactions. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. If you understand one, you will understand the other. I think the biggest difference is just the the target space that you're dealing with, the complexity of the targets that you're dealing with uh, dwarfs most other disease areas. And I think the other thing to take into account, which is also something I've mentioned quite a lot today already, but I'll mention it again, is that You need to be very, very smart about how you approach this, because the product needs to be cheap and affordable. If you're making a cancer drug, that doesn't need to be the case, because a lot of the people who need it can afford an expensive treatment or the healthcare systems can carry that. That is not the case in antiracillus. So you need to take that into account very early on in your uh, approaches.
0: Good one, Dr. Creoloxenoid from Amgen, um, how difficult is it to determine which area of the toxin surface needs to be targeted by the antibody?
1: It's That's a very good question. I mean, the problem that you're facing when you're dealing with toxins is uh, that you cannot give one answer because there are so many different protein families you're dealing with, you've got the small three finger toxins, which are some of the most neurotoxic and dangerous components you've got long neurotoxins short neurotoxins as well as cytotoxins that are part of that group there they're so small they're around five kilodalton or so that if you attach something like an IgG to it the chances that you'll have enough sterical hindrance to prevent any kind of interaction so their epitopes are less important than when we're talking about things like enzymatic toxins um, phospholipases, uh, serum proteases, but also metalloproteases, which have functional sites. There it is obviously absolutely key to hit a specific area on that toxin. And to answer the question of how difficult it is to determine, I don't know. I mean, again, when we know functional sites, usually you can get there quite quickly. But for some of the smaller toxins, we're not quite sure how like where the sites are. And if we actually really need to target specific sites or not.
0: And I think in those cases, maybe what you can do is try to design something, whatever the library you are working with, to have it as diverse as possible. Yeah. To explore the widest, you know, range of epitopes.
1: No, exactly. And that's again where where some of the really interesting science lies. Uh, We've done antibody discovery campaigns against all of these different families of toxins. And we've been able to get binders and neutralizers across all of them. So we have data to start informing this, but our grant so far, our funding so far has been on the discovery of these, not on the characterization. So that's why I'm coming in now to try and mine all of this data that is generated to start using it and improving our pipelines and improving the speed and efficiency at which we can go for not just binders, but broadly neutralizing binders and neutralizers.
0: You mentioned that you use actual Alphafold and a few others for uh, 3D structure prediction, how well did they perform?
1: Well, yeah, no, overall, it is it is a game changer. I mean, we, we, we've we gone through 2,000 structural predictions that we have for ColabFold, Alphafold, and Modeler, or at least we've done the modeling. We're currently going through this data and trying to dig into preparing the publication of that. Um, so I won't go too deep into this, but what I can say is that modeling performance is very good, but it is not perfect. And you cannot rely solely on AlphaFold to give you the answer to all problems yet. There, as I mentioned, there are there, there's variation between different AlphaFold based tools out there. There's also RosettaFold um, and these predictions are not identical. And obviously proteins are also not necessarily something that is rigid. So you need to be aware of, yeah, changes depending on what state they're in. And so it's it's a really, really good baseline and has changed the game for us significantly, but I think one needs to be careful on how much one relies on it.
0: Yeah. I, I think for some of them, you, you said that you have the, um, crystallography data right so probably you can look at that and say oh now we are coming to that one angstrom um,
1: yeah yeah we've got we've got a few few crystal structures of just the toxins we're currently working on crystal structures for complexes as well but yeah and uh, the problem again is it's so low throughput it's hard to say but it's the same issue as you had with the traditional computational approaches The less good templates you have, and the less of these, the worse the predictive performance of AlphaFold will get. And toxins are unfortunately in a space where there aren't a lot of high quality template structures, as you would see, for instance, with human or mouse proteins that have been described over and over again.
0: Yet, which you will change very soon, I hope.
1: Hopefully. (laughs) At least some others can do the crystallography. That's definitely not something I want to be doing myself. That is tedious, but uh, hopefully somebody is interested in doing this outside of our group as well.
0: Good. I see a few other messages coming in, but probably it's better to save them uh, for the networking part. Tim, so before we close, do you have a call for the audience? Uh, would it be maybe collaborations, funding or people for the
1: lab, anything? Any of the above, uh, as I think you also know, Murad, I'm, I'm somebody who loves talking about science. I love getting projects off the ground. I think this is a very exciting topic to work within, obviously being an, entirely biased, but I do have that sort of stark opinion. Um, so anybody who's interested in talking, collaborating, I mean, obviously, if you want to give us money to solve this, perfect. Unfortunately, there are not too many occasions where this can happen. But even if you are doing something along the lines, for instance, like our collaboration with Antiverse where you're already doing a lot of sequencing work and you're happy to lend us your pipelines to generate some of the data that we need to get us closer to the goal. But these kind of things are all super helpful, but also just talking to other people about it, raising this is an issue and giving the people who are really suffering from snake bite a voice that that already helps a lot. So yeah, I think just by attending, you've done something good, but I'm always happy to talk more and get in touch and see if there's any way to interact with each other on all kinds of different levels
0: that's great and if they want to reach you what platform would be the best
1: linkedin you can uh, also go to dtu where uh, you can check out my profile my emails on there as well cool. Facebook.
0: i'll Twitter. make sure to add those to the uh, to the recording notes all right so well, thank you very much for joining and being on the show and talking us through the venoms and the amazing work that you do. Thank you for having me.